You're listening to a podcast by the BCG Henderson Institute, BCG's Think Tank. In this series, hosted by fellow Dave Young, we'll interview business leaders and explore how companies can build competitive advantage by creating a sustainable world. Now on to our episode. Welcome to Building Competitive Advantage in a Sustainable World. You know, today I'm excited to host and welcome Art Peck and Annan Peck to discuss GAP Inc.'s journey to really achieving sustainability leadership in apparel retail. And beyond that, I'd argue, demonstrating an inspiring track record of innovation, impact, and performance in empowering women, enabling access to opportunity, and enriching communities while building a great brand. Art is the former CEO of Gap Inc., where he worked for 15 years, five as CEO. He's also the co-founder of The Great, which is a fast-growing premium apparel and lifestyle brand built on a next-generation business model. We'll hear more about that as well. And he's also CEO and chairperson of Good Commerce, a SPAC with the objective to create a leading-edge consumer holding company focusing on brands that are rooted in social and environmental values. And joining Art is Annan Peck, who's Director of ESG Strategy and Business Integration at Gap, Inc. And so Art, the spirit of sustainability and the aspiration for business as a force for good clearly is running in the family. It's a real pleasure to have this opportunity to talk with both of you about GAP's journey and really the way you've differentiated GAP in ESG and sustainability performance and making it a lens on how you've innovated, how you've built competitive advantage, how you've enriched the brand, and how you're really shifting the fashion industry to an increasingly sustainable industry. To begin, Art, Annan, would you please introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us a bit about your career and experience as it relates to leading GAP towards sustainability and ways for business to do good? After that kind of introduction, it's hard to add anything to it, Dave, but I'm, uh, I'll just say a few words and then I'll turn it over to Annan. So I was actually at BCG for 20-some years, went from there to Gap Bank, had a number of different roles inside of Gap Bank, both functional roles as well as several multi-billion dollar P&L roles, had the supply chain, the IT organization, all digital technology, and a bunch of other stuff that I got to dabble in, and then was CEO for five plus years as well. At the same time, I had involvement in, and most of the time I was there, the Gap Inc. Foundation reported to me as well, which is a small but very focused and impact-oriented philanthropic part of the organization, which is an important part of the story here as well, and actually how we got some things done outside of the mainstream business. Having left Gap Inc. a couple of years ago, I've sort of turned the page and in a very different chapter in my career now where I'm involved in a primarily in a business that didn't exist five years ago that I started with two partners that, as Dave described, is a really a premium apparel and lifestyle brand, primarily focused on women, but also with a men's capsule and a children's capsule. Very fast growth. And the fun thing there has been really a business that, unlike the rest of my career where I was involved with very large corporate organizations, creating something from scratch, having its own set of challenges, but also remarkably freeing in terms of not dealing with any legacy issues, being able to form a business model and a culture all from the ground up, really focused on how can a business be successful in the apparel industry tomorrow. Anna, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. My career also has not necessarily been 
a direct line into the ESG world. My background is in merchandising. I started as an assistant merchant with Gap Inc. right out of college. I also was able to spend some time in our supply chain team, working on our sourcing strategy team based in Hong Kong for a few years right before the pandemic. And then eventually found my way into the ASG team, leading the strategy and business integration work for Gap Inc. Ultimately, what led me here, I would say, is just the the realization throughout my career that increasingly it is important to tie business to ESG and that there are ways to make those two things complementary. So excited now for this conversation and for the opportunity to continue to, to grow our impact. Thanks, Anna and Art. You know, now everybody, if you will, is talking about sustainability and ESG. It's certainly been a big change over the last five years or so. Everybody's now focused much more on that why, but on the how. But Art, maybe if you could, as you led Gap, what was your vision for sustainability and why? Yeah, I would say that the it was less a vision, quite honestly, than an imperative. It's well documented, the issues that the, the fashion and apparel industry have in terms of just the carbon footprint, the issues associated with where raw materials come from. And one of the biggest ones, which I will come back to hopefully at some point, is just the amount of waste because of the way that the supply chain has been built over time, the amount of waste that the industry industry generates. And so, you know, Gap Inc.'s ESG, if you want to call it that, sort of ESG heritage was dealing with labor issues back in the day, long before I got to the company, and had done remarkable work really across its supply chain in making sure that factories were not employing child labor, working on working conditions and fair pay and other things. And that was really sort of locked and loaded inside the organization. And when I came into the company, it was really before ESG was a thing, but we really took on the issue of what's the next phase. And it was it was three things at the time. And this started long before I was CEO and I was lucky to be involved in them. One was back to labor was creating a program for the almost million women that work in the supply chain, not employed by the company, but working for our vendors. The second one was a focus on at-risk youth in the cities that we did business in. And then the third was really around what I would call sort of broadly the sustainability lens and how do we make progress as a company on all three of those things. Those were the key areas of focus. And we wanted to make material change in the communities that we did business in. That was the underlying thesis always. Art, the thing that inspired me about a lot of what Gap did was there were clear, you could read clear connections between the capacity of the business to create impact and the fact that doing it in the way you were doing it was also gonna make the business stronger and improve its advantage, whether that was in the stability and capacity of the supply chain, where there's a way that could be transmitted out in terms of the brand. You know, we've done a lot of work at looking at sustainable business model innovation. We've looked at over 500 examples of corporate initiatives around sort of sustainability and ESG. And less than one in five actually show strong connection to the business. And less than one in three of those actually show kind of a connection in a way that begins to change the competitive landscape in the industry, begins to set up a different definition. But from what you're describing, it sounds like that had always been part, or at least you can you really pushed it to become more and more part of the way you were seeing sustainability as integral to the business. Yeah, you know, you know, if 
if it's not built in and supportive of business success, it's painted on philanthropy, which is fine, but that can always just change with the next administration as well as priorities change. The early example I saw of that, which really informed much of what we did later on, was Product Red. It was Bono and Bobby Schreiber who had this idea that they could get companies behind this brand and it would help provide funding to fight HIV in Africa. And it was one of the first things I did when I came to the company. But the premise of that was always that it had to be about good business and that those products that we were creating under the red brand, whether it was a, you know, an Apple phone or a Gap Inc. sweatshirt, those had to be good for the business while at the same time supporting the fight against HIV AIDS in Africa. That idea of building it into the business system sort of became fundamental and informed sort of everything that we did. It wasn't always easy and it's not always easy, but to me, it's central to creating lasting impact. Anna, how has that been taken forward? How are you taking that forward? What do you see as sort of the frontiers and in the gap agenda now for advancing sustainability in ESG? A lot of the foundation that was set in the last several years continues and has only enabled us to accelerate our work. We've officially reached 1 million women in our supply chain in the PACE program. So that alone is an amazing milestone and something to scream from the rooftops about. With the PACE program, what we're now realizing is while that was the foundation, our impact is as big as that program has reached. And so it is now open source and other brands and other organizations can use that program to empower women in their supply chain. And so that amplification effect is so critical as we want to be able to continue to lead in this space. The other primary thing that I'd say is while my dad was with the company, that was when we officially signed on to our long-term goals in the environment space. So achieving water positivity through the CEO water mandate by 2050 and achieving carbon neutral by 2050. Those goals, we had no idea whatsoever how to reach those goals. They're lofty and they're long-term. The work we're doing now is setting the foundation, understanding the gaps and building the roadmap so we can ensure that we do achieve those goals over time. At least in the early days, we worked with the vendors where the program was, the curriculum was being implemented to audit what the impact was on their workforce and their productivity. And it was good for the women but it was also good for the businesses that they worked in. It impacted absence and vacancy. It impacted productivity. We could see a direct link between the women that had gone through the program and their ability to be promoted up into what were traditionally male management ranks. And so all of those things were again about not just it being a good program, but being a program that was good for business, which meant that it had critical mass. And once you get the flywheel turning, we found that it was a it was a it was very impactful and it no longer in many cases required any funding from Gap Inc. It was something that our vendors picked up because they saw it as something that ultimately helped their bottom line as well as the communities that they did business in. When I was the global chief operating officer for World Vision, I so admired that program. You know, we had 41,000 staff out in the field. But what we were looking for were those examples of where we saw these very strong partnerships between business with development objectives. 
in ways that could really make meaningful impact. And I think PACE was just a hallmark program. The way it was formed with USAID to gain additional scale and additional resources, the role that the NGOs played. But maybe for our listeners, could could you describe a little bit more exactly what PACE was? PACE was really focused on our supply chain. And again, close to a million women that work across the supply chain in garment factories. We did it in conjunction almost always with, you mentioned USAID, but other NGOs in a variety of countries. It was focused on a curriculum that was delivered in essentially a classroom environment that was supported by our vendors where they provided the facilities. And the curricular elements to it were First of all, just basic business and financial skills. It was really about helping women understand how to manage their household, but also the business environment they were working in. There was a component that, depending on the environment, was focused on literacy, because oftentimes these women had been denied educational opportunities at a very young age. There was a component that was focused on reproductive health and family planning, which is obviously another critical component that allows women to become somewhat independent, if not wholly independent, depending on how they are in control of reproductive health. And then there were other elements that might be culturally specific, et cetera. But we could document the, obviously, the success rate and the graduation rate. Gap Inc. Foundation, which was where that program lived, was tiny. But we viewed the relationships and then going open source as really, I think, the force multiplier. We could control the quality of how it was implemented, but we didn't have to be the sole organization that was funding it on a global basis. The team that did it was amazing. It's something that the company should be very proud of. And it touched, again, it touched hundreds of thousands of lives in a positive way and continues to do so. The other thing, Art, that I think was inspiring about that example is the smart use of a corporate foundation as a catalytic vehicle that can work alongside the business and then bringing in both government as well as NGOs and your supply chain to be multipliers. It's just really an inspiring example. It's, I think it's one of the few that I would argue really stands out uh, across in the development world. Most corporations of any size have foundation arms. When I first got involved with the foundation, we had just brought in a person from the outside, a woman named Bobby Silton, who's a dear friend and incredibly talented. And she and I put our heads together and looked at the foundation and made a decision that we wanted to focus so that we could have impact. And like most corporate foundations at the time, you know, there was a little bit of money squirted to the opera and some money to the Cal water polo team. And, and we just said, you know, we're not, we're not really accomplishing much of anything. It's very good for the community, but what are the critical priorities that really matter for the company where we want to have an impact? And with the Fisher's support, Don and Doris were both on the foundation at the time, the foundation board. We radically focused it and then weaned the, all those peripheral organizations off of Gap Inc. funding largely to bring that relatively small amount of money down to where it was applying that money on a couple of pressure points with great effect. In setting the goals, whether that's water or environment, there are ambitious goals in many ways you're not exactly sure how they could be achieved at the time they're being set, but how does that drive innovation at GAP? So if we take our water goal, for example, which we 
don't even yet have a clear idea as to what the definition of meeting water positive is, because that's a very forward-looking definition that our industry is still working to define. But that goal, there are going to be various different components of what will it take to reach that goal. Product is one key area because with water, yes, it's amazing if we can continue to move our facilities to use gray water versus fresh water. Our Arvind Innovation Project does just that, but that alone doesn't dramatically reduce our water footprint. To reduce our water footprint, we actually have to find, source, and help scale interesting and unique innovation across the supply chain that will reduce our reliance on water as we manufacture it. Any type of dye technology, our foam dyed indigo genes that Banana Republic currently produces, those are the types of things that we're going to have to seek out for every single category across the organization. Us alone, we recognize our skill set isn't to actually build that innovation, but the power of our portfolio of brands enables us to find those unique companies who have built that innovation and help them understand how to work in the apparel industry, how to partner with our supply chain, and how to scale. Yeah, and oftentimes in those situations, we'll get connected with them and they might be looking for equity investment. After the conversation plays out, it becomes pretty clear that one of the biggest assets the company has to a company like that is less about squirting capital into the business and more about how do you scale the technology so that it becomes implementable, not on dying 500 units to use Anna's example, but 500,000 units, and it becomes cost-effective at scale as well. And that platform of you know, the massive market that the company reaches is incredibly valuable for some of these emerging technologies to be able to access. Sometimes one of the mental barriers to all of this is people believing the demand is there or people believing that the market has catalyzed enough. And what you're pointing out is when you can anchor within an ecosystem and, and basically because of who you are and the size and the reach, you can catalyze those markets. You can make those technologies real simply by uh, the ability to use that scale in new ways. I'm not sure how many companies actually recognize that is almost a hidden lever for their own sustainability story, the way you guys have done it. It's not always easy because sometimes you have to nudge a brand to put a product with a different vendor that might cost 25 cents a unit more. Those are the kinds of things that you do when you're working with these companies that are more in early stage. I would simply go to a brand president and say, I want you to do this. I know it's going to be a cost penalty. I will hold you harmless for that cost and penalty on the impact of earnings in your business so that we can move things forward. You do that selectively, but you know in how incentives align, which is probably something you're going to get to as well, but how incentives align across the organization is a really critical component to all of this. Annan, could you speak a little bit more to that and, and what other ways do you see modifying incentives in order to accelerate some of these opportunities, whether, again, it's water or carbon or opportunities to lift suppliers into new levels of performance in relationship with the business? One of the examples that comes to mind is just our work on adopting more sustainable fibers, because that is something that is so apparent that customers care about, but also does have a cost implication to product for the most part. First and foremost, our brands adopting goals 
to achieve 100% more sustainable cotton and over 45% more sustainable polyester. That has been a huge step. It's not just incentivizing, but it's aligning incentives so everyone within a brand is holding hands on something that they want to achieve. The incentives plus education and an understanding across the supply chain has really been what has enabled us to adopt more sustainable cotton and more sustainable polyester faster. And until we had all of those things in place, we would see intermittent adoption. We would see various different businesses within the brand adopting those fibers. But once we had all of those components together, that's where the acceleration really happened. Back to this question of innovation and sustainability, everybody talks about how difficult it is to drive innovation in a large enterprise. And you've given an example here of how it took, in some ways, sort of personal intervention and sanction to do it. But now you're also on the other side of this with the great and also with the uh, SPAC that you, you've been involved with and in, in co-founding. How do you think about that whole system? How do you think about innovation within the context of, of the big and small and something like sustainability? Does it take both? Change in big companies is hard. You know that. It's hard because you have business systems, you have processes, you have discipline, you have culture, you have training, you have incentives, you have a global supply chain that's been built and optimized to do one thing in particular. Change will come in this industry because big companies like Gap Inc. and others embrace it for whatever reason, and they do the heavy lifting associated with driving that change. But change will also come, and frankly, it will be motivated in big companies because small companies starting afresh that can wire themselves differently are going to bite a lot of ankles. And eventually, if you have enough of those ankle biters, it starts to hurt and market share starts to move. And, and so it's really a combination of the two. The grade is really five years old in substance. We're not yet $100 million in revenue, but we're biting ankles right now. You know, we're growing at a close to 100% rate right now. And so you can do the math. It starts to be meaningful. What we did was we decided to build a, a different business system. And I sort of talk about it as pulling the industry in, inside out. One of the biggest issues that people don't talk about in the apparel industry very much is the fact that a significant number of the units that are bought in any given season in any given year end up creating no economic value. For a mainstream mass apparel company, 30% of the units of product in any given year are sold at or below cost. And the reason for that is the supply chain is globally distributed and long lead time, and fashion is fashion, and therefore the alignment of what you can sell with what you bought often generates misses and mistakes. Go into any apparel store, walk into the back, there's going to be a clearance section. And that is the stuff that either was a mistake or overbought or whatever. With the great, we said, we're not going to build a global supply chain. 80% of our product is sourced locally in the Los Angeles area. Our supply chain is very short. The industry has built a supply chain to get the lowest unit costs, which is why the, the race to the bottom is what's taken everybody into Bangladesh and other incredibly low-cost labor environments. With the great, we said, we're 
going to build a business model that maximizes margin, and we're going to buy what we can sell versus sell what we bought. We're going to see the industry continue to move in that direction, because if you think about 30% of the units, and if you're a large apparel company, you're talking about you know a billion units or more that are sourced from raw materials, whether it's cotton or synthetic, where that product is shipped to another country where it's cut and sewn and washed and dyed and then packaged and then shipped to a port and put on a ship and coming into another port and then onto a truck or a rail and then into a DC and then onto a truck into the back room of a store to create zero economic value. It gives you an idea of the magnitude of both the waste, but also the magnitude of the opportunity to clean that up. That in a large company like Gap Inc. is very hard to do because the world that Annan works in is a global supply chain that is oftentimes months and months long from the time of design inspiration to the product actually showing up on the shelf. How do you see digital data, transparency, AI, how do these things come to play in being able to advance sustainability in the industry? If I go back to this issue of waste, and let me dimensionalize the problem. If I'm buying a billion units a year, but 30% of them create no economic value, I could buy just the 66% or 70% and create the same amount of economic value and eliminate the carbon footprint and all the waste associated with that. And yet I have a supply chain that is months long and global in nature. So one of the questions is, how do I bring data to bear earlier in the process to better inform what I buy based upon the demand indicators that historically only came when you put product in a store, but today come through a variety of social media channels? And are there ways to interpret those early indicators of consumer demand that can help inform a more efficient and more responsible buy. The other vector is I shorten the amount of time in the supply chain, but how do I also better inform my buys? Historically, that's been done because you had brilliant merchants and you still need brilliant merchants. But I like brilliant merchants who also say, give me an unfair advantage and give me the data as well. And I will try to buy better and I will try to buy more efficiently. The more I have of the right product, the better I'm going to do in any given season. Beyond that, I think there's a lot of, honestly, a lot of hype out there. How does AI come in to this industry? It's sort of related to that, which is AI is just a smart brain interpreting data and what you can do with it. The continued move towards online fulfillment and away from physical stores, that has impacts on how you think about the efficiency of inventory. But I think this is a place where there's so much low hanging fruit from the fundamentals of simply focusing on the key pieces that you don't need, you know, supercomputers and rocket scientists to make a ton of impactful progress. Some of these issues can become more complicated than they really are when there's just obvious opportunity that sits in front of you as an organization. Yeah, Anna, would you add to that? What are you saying now? It's two things. It's traceability and then transparency. Traceability being our ability to understand the complexity of our supply chain all the way from raw material into our store. Transparency being how we actually speak to where our product comes from to our customer. Both are equally important, but both do very different things. 
traceability allows us to mitigate a significant amount of risk in our business because we have better knowledge of where our product is coming from, either from understanding where our raw material comes from and the potential impacts of climate change and how it would either decrease the supply of that raw material or increase the cost to everything happening in our spinners, mill, and vendor partners. Then if we think about the transparency component, to me, that's much more on one, any regulations and disclosures that we as a company need to make as we see ESG becoming increasingly a focus of the SEC. And then second, from a consumer perspective, consumers want to know more about where their product is coming from, who made their clothes, where their cotton came from, et cetera. So it would enable us to actually build that value with our consumers and continue to build the message of how we're talking about our product. When I was in the company, from when I first started, Gap Inc. had a virtual prohibition culturally against talking about any good it was doing as a company. And the reason for that was that there was a concern at the time that something bad was going on someplace just because we couldn't police everything all the time. And therefore, 99% good was potentially going to be overshadowed by that 1% bad. And over time, there was a pretty significant cultural change that took place, which is to talk about the good that you're doing and acknowledge that you're not perfect. If you're a big brand, there is a conversation going on about your brand, whether or not you are participating in it. And it is happening on social media. It is happening out there today. And the big change I saw that the company was to join the conversation. It takes courage to recognize that things are going to improve over time. And it's better to talk about the good. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in ESG, which I think is very healthy, is just the priority of narrative and the ability to sort of say, hey, we're on a journey. What do you see as sort of the next frontier for sustainability in the apparel retail fashion industry? For 50 years plus, the supply chain, as I said, was a, was a race to the bottom. Find the cheapest labor and squeeze every penny you could out of a unit of product. There are very interesting technologies today that really come from AI and computer vision that are going to allow what has fundamentally been essentially a hand labor marketplace to allow capital to start to come back in, in the cutting and the sewing part of the business. We're already seeing that in some areas where you're starting to see nearshoring or onshoring into industrialized countries where that capital is coming back in and that substitution of capital for labor is going to start disrupting components of the supply chain. There's a very interesting company in New York of all places, and they're doing computerized knitting where they can do small batch knitting at cost-effective prices in the New York metropolitan area. There hasn't been any meaningful garment production in the New York metropolitan area probably for 50 years. That's going to be slow, but it is going to happen. And that in itself will start to have a pretty dramatic impact on components of the supply chain and on elements of sustainability. Anna can talk about you know, the water impact, fiber sourcing, dyeing technology, et cetera. But we're seeing a sort of an accelerating movement again of bringing capital into the, which, which is going to change the global footprint potentially 
starting in some key categories as we watch the industry over the next 10 years. The other component that I see ESG moving towards is just this integration idea that we've talked about, which is no matter how much amazing technology is out there, if we don't empower every individual in the product development process to be able to understand the decisions that they can make with that technology to reduce our footprint, we are not going to accelerate our impact. To me, it's as important to empower all of our organization, incentivize all of our organization, and educate. It's just as important as it is to continue to have new technologies in the industry that continue to disrupt the way in which we make our clothes. Do you think there's a responsibility to nudge consumers toward products that are simply better, healthier, lower footprint, et cetera? Leaders of major corporations for a very long period of time, up until relatively recently, have largely tried to stay away from any kind of social, political, any kind of controversial issue because you never wanted to take sides. And, you you know, in my case, I didn't want to have a protest outside of an old Navy store or something like that. Over the last probably decade, that's really gone, gone away. And leaders in major companies have a extraordinarily important platform to use for the betterment of the communities that they do business in. Ideally, that's not politicized. I don't think this is politicized, but I think it's become a place where your shareholders, your customers, certainly your employees and your board has an expectation that you will provide constructive leadership. And part of that is how to take your customers on a journey in a way as well. Some of that, frankly, is making sure that when you have a product you're bringing to market inside of Gap Inc., not only is it sustainable and better for the world, but it's also on trend, it's well-made, it's well-priced. The corollary to that is, will customers pay more for good? And the answer is, I would say, jury is still out on that. I think it can influence loyalty, but you're not going to get a customer to buy an ugly pair of an off-trend pair of jeans just because it was responsibly made. One of the challenges we face right now is we don't make it very easy for customers to purchase more sustainably. The way we speak about our product, the way we speak about our values, I, I feel very confident as Gap Inc. we've made amazing strides to talk about our work transparently and honestly. You'll notice everything I've said, I haven't said sustainable, I've said more sustainable. That's very intentional. Because we aren't sustainable, no one in the industry is, but we are working our best to become more sustainable through all of the decisions that we make as a business. That is one of the most critical components that's missing right now from empowering our customers and any consumer. I'm in the industry and I still don't know exactly what brands are telling me when they're talking about their product and what makes them more sustainable. And so in order to do that, to me, the role of the brands and the role of the corporations is to enable that transparency across marketing so that consumers can do that and be confident in their decisions. If you think about it, food, personal care products, and clothing are the three most intimate things that you as a consumer consume. 
Yeah, they're in your body and they're on your body and they touch your skin. And the moment to accelerate this change is, is upon us right now, I think with a incrementally different consumer mindset that is more open to this than they've ever been. There are clearly questions if you're a leader in an organization on timing. There are no questions on direction. There's more than ample data that says that we have to do this, that it's an imperative for us as business leaders to provide leadership and demonstrate tangible progress here. But the other side of that, again, back to where we started is, and it's very clear that this will today, does today and will tomorrow be an incredibly important part of your customer value proposition. And customers will vote with their dollars for companies where their values are transparent and where their values are aligned with theirs. And so this is the moment. This is not an option. This is about a necessity. Get the journey started. Making sure that we always have the right product on the shelves that consumers actually want is still the single most important thing. But then layering on our values and speaking transparently to those values is what will drive that consumer relationship long-term and ensure that loyalty. We look at what we're calling sustainable business model innovation to search out across industry sectors, people that are sort of flipping models around, relocalizing, re-regionalizing, changing the societal and environmental content in a product, making it circular in some cases, in other cases, working cross-sector or taking collective action. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about collective action at an industry level? How do you think about maybe GAP's role in promoting or, or marking out industry change? One of the things that I love about the ESG world in general is the fact that it's one of the few places where the industry takes a collaborative approach. I think one of the the most amazing things that the team has done recently is our new partnership called Empower at Work, which Gap Inc. is a founding member. It's a partnership with a number of other NGOs, and it's really the evolution of our PRACE program recognizing that bringing together expertise across the industry is going to be able to help us move way faster and farther than we ever would be able to, even with the PACE program that we've done. You know, what's so fascinating about all these discussions that we've been having is the cross-industry learnings. You know, the industrial guy will listen to this and they'll be like, wow, I didn't, here's an analog in my, in my industry. And, and, you know, we'll have a guy who's running a big power company and somebody in the retail industry listens to it and said, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. So really appreciate your time. Really appreciate the quality of the discussion. Thank you so much. This podcast was part of our series on building competitive advantage in a sustainable world. For more information about this and other research topics, follow the BCG Henderson Institute's research online at bcghendersoninstitute.com and follow our podcast series on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.